starting in John chapter 2, verse 13. If this is your first Sunday in a while, or your very first Sunday, welcome. We're going through the Gospel of John together, and we are at the story of Jesus cleansing the temple in John chapter 2, page 1054. Let's start in verse 13, and we'll finish the chapter. Christian, hear the word of the Lord to us this morning. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me, from Psalm 69. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, and when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Christian, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep John open in front of you as we pray now? Uh, Father, would you give us zeal for your house? Uh, Father, would you give us a passion for your glory? Father, we cannot find that within ourselves, but it is available to us through your Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, even now, you say that when two or three are gathered in your name, you are among us. And so, Holy Spirit, even now, would you be bringing dry bones to life? Uh, For those of us who need renewal in our faith, would you renew us by grace? For those of us who need to profess faith in your Son and believe in his name, would that happen even this morning? Father, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe. Amen. Now, I want to give you a quick thought experiment, if that's okay. Imagine, I know this is going to be hard, imagine you come to worship and you sit down. And imagine it's your place of worship. It's your favorite place of worship. And imagine then someone walks up to you and they look at you and they grab both of their hands, like this, and what they do is they grab your hair, if you have it, and they mess it all up. They just shake your head like this. So your nicely made hair that you did just for this morning to look nice at church is all messed up. And then they have the audacity to take the cup of coffee in your hand and pour out all of your wonderful coffee from Good Bean in a trash bag. And then they snatch your cell phone and they toss it across the floor. They grab your keys. 
They throw it out the door in the grass and they say, get out of here. Now, that's not what Jesus is doing to worshipers in this story. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Jesus is not attacking worshipers. But you have to understand that when Jesus walks into the temple, the the court of the Gentiles, and he looks at the money changers and the people with the oxen and the sheep and the pigeons, and he literally throws the tables over and you can hear the clattering coins. And he starts, you know, letting the pigeons fly away. And he makes a whip. He ma- Jesus made a whip. And he starts driving oxen. Have you ever been around an oxen? Do you want to be on the other side of an oxen when it starts being whipped on the other side? Jesus causes quite the commotion. And the natural question that all of these people have is, who are you? <laughs> On what authority are you doing these things? Now, don't worry. I'm not going to come ruffle your you know, head or any of that stuff. No one is going to do that. Well, you know, maybe somebody will, but I'm not going to do it. Don't worry about it. But that sense of who in the world are you? I'm coming to worship. That sense of being offended is very, very close to what Jesus is provoking in this story. And that begs the question, right? Who in the world would have this kind of authority? Who in the world would have the audacity to do this? I remember years ago, I was giving a Bible study. Uh, It was uh, a Wednesday night Bible study. And I was talking about that uh, eponymous, uh, you know, bracelet that about 20 years ago, everybody had. You know, raise your hand if you ever wore a what would Jesus do bracelet, right? Some of you were ultra sanctified and you wore two of them, right? (laughs) Anybody get double power when you had, you were, you know, double wristing it, you know? Well, uh, I, I love it. There's a meme you can find it on the internet, and I think it perfectly summarizes what I think of what would Jesus do. And it says, next time somebody asks you, what would Jesus do? Remember that making a whip and driving out people and turning over tables is within the realm of possibilities. <laughs> I remember a few years ago talking to a guy, and he was talking about having righteous anger which, if anyone ever talks about righteous anger, just know you don't have righteous anger, okay? If you, have to, if you feel the need to say, I'm having righteous anger, usually you're not, right? Usually it's justified. And he was explaining why he was really mad about something. He said, it's okay for me to be really mad and scheme because there was a moment in Jesus' life where he sat down and made a whip. <laughs> it was premeditated, right? Jesus took some moments in his life. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to sat? Well, maybe not. Maybe you wouldn't want to sit next to Jesus in that moment, but I would love to have sat next to Jesus when he made that whip and been like, what, what are you thinking right now? What's about to happen? And the beautiful thing about this story is you can find out exactly what Jesus is thinking about. And it may surprise you what he's driving at. So if you look at your passage, there's three simple paragraphs uh, that you need to sort of see the flow of logic uh, that John is talking about. So if you look right down your passage, it's, uh, the first section is verses 13 through 17, right? There's your first paragraph, and that's where Jesus turns over the tables. And you can see in verse 17 that John concludes that little paragraph with a statement. His disciples remembered a verse from Psalm 69 that says, Zeal, enthusiasm, energy for your house will consume me. And then the next little paragraph, verses 18 through 22, he then explains what he's doing. And Jesus has the audacity to say that he is the real temple. 
And it also finishes in verse 22, that little paragraph, with the disciples remembering again something about Jesus. So you can see how those paragraphs are patterned off of each other. And then verses 23 through 25, that last little section is um, a warning um, in ways for us uh, that Jesus sees who we really are. And he sees our lackadaisical worship, our, our, our lack of passion for his name. And it's, uh, you, know, you don't really see it in the Greek, but it finishes with this idea that people start trusting in Jesus, but because Jesus knows what we're like to our core, he does not entrust himself to us because he knows what is in us. And so Jesus cannot put his safety in man. See, this whole story, just like the wedding in Cana, if you were here last week, is all barreling towards the cross. Uh, There is no ambiguity in Jesus' mind. He is setting his face like flint towards the cross. That's how Isaiah describes the Messiah. He will set his face like flint. He will not turn away from the cross. He is barreling towards it, even in this story. So let's try to understand what's going on. Look at verse 13. Right there in our first paragraph, it says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, if you remember, the Passover is a celebration of God delivering his people out of slavery into the promised land. And everything that John is teaching us all throughout the Gospels is that everything in the Old Testament is leading up to Jesus. If you were here last week, you'll remember that the Jewish rites of purification, those cleansing rituals, Jesus fills them full, he fulfills them, and he makes us truly clean by his blood. And here what we're seeing is there's a Passover, a lamb is slaughtered for every family in Israel to remind us that we have been saved by the blood of the lamb. Remember in John chapter 1, what does John the Baptist call Jesus? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? So John is now saying even Passover, this incredible Passover meal, is all about Jesus. Why were there countless lambs slain over and over again in every family? Because it's all pointing us towards the ultimate lamb who would be slain. And notice right there, it says Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. Now, uh, that's, not, uh, that's not necessarily geographic in every sense, because uh, anywhere in Israel, no matter if you're up on a mountain and Jerusalem is lower than you, everybody goes up to Jerusalem, just like everyone in England goes up to London, regardless of the geography. So it's not saying they are literally climbing up always, but it's ascending to the mountain of God, Zion, the city of God. Now, the question there, if you're really astute, if you really know the Bible, uh, you may be wondering then, wait a second, I've read the Gospels before. I thought when Jesus cleansed the temple that it happened just a few days before he died. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all unanimous in that this cleansing of the temple happens right after the triumphal entry. This is what Jesus does after Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, O Lord, when he enters Jerusalem on a donkey. And then he walks in. And then just a few days later on Passover, he's killed. So what is it? John, right there in verse 13, as you'll notice, he ties it to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. 
right? If you look at verse 12, it says, after this, Jesus went down to Capernaum, and he stayed there only for a few days. And then the Passover comes. Uh, So really, uh, biblical scholars, guys way smarter than me, uh, they have basically two camps. uh, And neither one of them really affect the understanding of the meaning of the passage. But you need to know there's kind of two ways to understand this. One, Jesus and the story of the Passover is intentionally brought sooner into the story for John, not because he's trying to chronologically explain the life of Jesus, but he's trying to make a thematic purpose, a thematic reason, right? He's saying Jesus is the Passover. So uh, John does not always try to give us a perfect chronology. I mean, think about the way the Gospels are written. What was Jesus doing when he was a teenager? The Gospel writers don't really care. It doesn't really matter. Wouldn't it be great if we knew? Well, they're so not interested in answering that question, you know? Wouldn't you love to read, like, the teenage life or the youth ministry of Jesus Christ? Gospel writers don't want to write that book. They don't care. They have different motives, So one option is that John is just intentionally bringing this to a different place in the story, not because he's trying to lie or trick us, he's just trying to make a point. The other explanation of guys like Leon Morris and D.A. Carson, and me personally, I actually believe that this is a second temple cleansing. Uh, Actually, this would be the first time Jesus cleansed the temple. And there's a bunch of reasons for why I would say that. First off, Jesus gives a very different reason for why he did this. You may remember in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that when Jesus cleanses the temple, he calls all of those people what? He says, this house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations, for all the Gentiles, and you have made it a den of robbers. You're stealing from people, you're price gouging, and you're supposed to be making room for Gentiles to come to faith, and you're not doing it. I have come for all people. That seems to be the argument for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And remember, they're tying this just a few days before Jesus dies on the cross. This happens very early in his ministry. And notice what Jesus says in this story. He says something similar, but not exactly the same. Look at verse 15. He makes the whip of cords. Matthew, Mark, and Luke never mention the whip, which, as you already know, is my favorite part of the story. (laughs) Don't you just love that? Anytime we, well, you know we sing fairest Lord Jesus. Anyone, you know, I know we like old hymns and I love old hymns, but fairest Lord Jesus, I just don't think I would sing that when he was cleansing the temple or Jesus meek and mild, you know. There's a lot of words, I mean, Jesus is the best, but those would not be the first words that I thought of uh, in describing Jesus, you know. Um, I don't think he's far from ruffling people's hair and pouring their coffee out. I mean, he's literally taking tables full of money and just chucking them. I mean, anyone here just in your minds, I imagine, what would it be like for Dustin to throw the pulpit? (laughs) That would be cool. I would never forget that sermon. Amen. Amen. That's right. Is Jesus meek and mild? Yes, there is a sense, but he's much, much more than that. He's got some fight in him, right? Um, This is the guy who says, tell that old fox, Herod. You know, he calls the king an old fox, right? And then he looks at the Pharisees and he says, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You dance on the graves of the prophets. Jesus has a little bit of a bite to him. He's gentle. His yoke is easy. He offers you all grace. 
And it reminds me of what you know, C.S. Lewis describes Aslan of in the Chronicles of Narnia. Do you remember that story? Uh, Lucy says, she's asking about Jesus, who's the lion, and she says, is he, is he safe? And you remember what Mr. Beaver says? He says, oh, goodness, no, he's not safe, but he's good. See, Lewis is getting at Jesus is good, uh, but he's not always, you know, sipping a latte, you know, sitting crisscross applesauce on a cushion in a coffee shop. He's not this spiritual guru that we sometimes try to make him out to be. He's not always fairest Lord Jesus. Sometimes he's got a whip in his hand. See, Jesus is doing this. He's turning over the tables. Um, he doesn't say that they're doing something wrong in the sense that they shouldn't be doing this. It's not that they're doing something wrong in the sense that they're um, maybe price gouging. That doesn't seem to be John's point. In fact, what they're doing is actually sort of positive in and of itself, because as you have all of the pilgrims coming to Jerusalem, right, for Passovers, all these thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people, all of the people of, uh, of Judea and Samaria, all the people of the diaspora, all the people who worship the Lord are coming to Jerusalem, they can't all bring their pigeons and their oxen to make sacrifices to the Lord. So what do they do? Well, they bring their money, and they're coming from all over the known world, and they're providing a good, right? They're, people are letting them give their temple tax, and they're exchanging money. And what Jesus is getting at and what he's driving at is he's saying, you have missed the point of worship. You are filling the space that we should be worshiping the Lord and praying to him and focusing on God, and you've missed the point. You've made it to where it's just all about the external exchange of money, and you've got animals. There's the bleating of sheep when there should be moments of prayer. I mean, think about it this way. Uh, you know, raise your hand if you, ser- if you have served in our church in the last year. If you've done something, and raise it high if you didn't want to do it, and we'll, you know, we're even more impressed. <laughs> There you go. Hey, that'll preach, right? You know, what Jesus is getting at is there is a way for us to go about our faith, right, our religion, in a way where we focus on doing things for the Lord and we forget to be with the Lord. And what's especially dangerous about this is this is as true and as dangerous for pastors and church leaders, and elders, and deacons, as it is for anybody. Anyone ever come to the temple and focused more on the pigeons than on worship? See, what Jesus is getting at is he is intentionally doing something sort of bombastic and out there in order to shake us out of our malaise of casual worship. Um, You better believe if I threw this beautiful pulpit across the floor, you would never forget it. And that's exactly Jesus' point. When he turns over the tables, he's doing something that should be a sign to them. First off, who are you? Jesus says, this is my Father's house. Who gets the inheritance? The Son He's saying, this is my father's house, and I run the show. What I say goes at the temple. 
That's his first thing he's claiming. It's one of Jesus' boldest ex, uh, claims on that the fact that he is the Messiah. He's, he doesn't say this is the temple. He says, this is my father's house. And when I come in, I run the show, nobody else. <laughs> and then you know what else he does? When he turns over the tables and he says, this is to be a house of worship and passion for your name has consumed me. Zeal, right? We don't ever use that word zeal anymore, but what it just means is enthusiasm and energy. And we would, we would say today, passion for the Lord has consumed me. You see, in the Old Testament, the prophets would do crazy signs in order to get people's attention so that they would never forget it. In fact, in Isaiah 20, you know, everyone loves Isaiah, right? The old prophet. He's one of my favorite authors in the Bible. In Isaiah 20, you know what the Lord tells Isaiah to do? Is he says, strip naked so that people can see your rear end and walk around the city and tell them if they do not repent, they will be exiled and they will be brought out of the city naked and they will be brought to Babylon. And you know what the Lord says? He says, do it as a sign. Do something that they can never forget. And when Jesus walks into the temple, and he says, I'm tired of your casual worship. I'm tired of it. It's not acceptable to God. And he starts turning over the tables. It's a sign to us, that everyone in this room, we may need to get our coffee poured out and our keys thrown in the grass <laughs> so that we would worship the Lord in spirit and in truth because he is worthy of everything. I, I'm not going to mess up your hair. I don't have that authority. I'm not going to shake you out. But you know who does have the authority? Jesus Christ the Lord. And if you're a Christian, if you have the Holy Spirit in you this morning, there is a part of you, a redeemed part of you, that yearns for Jesus to wake you up. That yearns for that moment. That's why the disciples, after Jesus is dead, and they spend years talking about what he did, they remember. They said, that's what he was doing. He was waking us up to know God. And that passion and that zeal was consuming him in that moment. But don't let that word be lost on you because that is an ominous statement. Because his passion for right worship does consume Jesus. Let me say it another way. His passion for the Lord and his disregard for man's worship and man's money and any of this outward praise for man, that passion does lead to Jesus being consumed, being devoured. And in fact, that's what Jesus drives at next, that this passion will lead to his death. Look at verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? He just gave them the sign. <laughs> What's the sign? I run the show. That's the sign. If you don't understand that, I'm not going to give you much more than that. That's the sign. And what's amazing about that is they're not just saying, hey, buddy, who are you? They understand that he's doing something prophetic, that he is acting like Isaiah, that he has some kind of authority. 
and yet they don't want to believe in him. And what does Jesus respond with? Jesus gives them this sort of beautiful challenge. He says, destroy this temple. You know, if you destroy this temple, in three days, I will raise it up. It's almost a riddle, right? And the, the, the Jewish leaders, right? It doesn't mean all the Jews right there. It means the Jewish leaders, the guys running the show. They look at Jesus and they say, it's taken us 46 years to build a temple. What are you talking about three days? Right? You remember a few weeks ago, I talked about how Jesus can talk at two levels right? There's the obvious, like, what are you doing? And then there's the deeper, what are you doing with your life? (laughs) What are you seeking? But what are you really seeking? Jesus is saying something at this level, and yet he's profoundly saying something incredibly, incredibly deep. And even the disciples don't get it until after he comes back from the dead. He wasn't talking about the actual temple. He was talking about his body. Because what is the temple? Well, the temple is the place that God meets his world. That was where we gave sacrifices to the Lord once a year. If you wanted to go to where God was, you had to go to the temple. That's why, uh, who's the guy in the lion's den? Daniel. Daniel, where does he face when he prays? Anyone remember? He faces Jerusalem. Why does he do that? Because that's where the Lord is. He is in his holy temple. Once a year when we make our sacrifices, we go up to Jerusalem. This is why we sing the songs of ascent, because we go to the temple where God meets us. And what Jesus is saying is not only does the Passover ultimately lead to me, he's saying even the temple, even where God meets us, I am the temple. And you can tear me down, and I will bring it back in three days. Because I am where God meets the broken world. And the temple was used for sacrifice after sacrifice. And if you know world history, you'll know that very soon after Jesus died and was raised again on the third day, in A.D. 70, what happened to the temple in Jerusalem? It was torn to the ground. It's torn to the ground, and it has never been rebuilt. You can go to the Wailing Wall today and see the stones of the temple that once stood. Why? Because the temple was always pointing towards Jesus. It was always pointing towards God with us. We have no sacrifice left to be made. There is no more scapegoat to offer once a year. There is no more blood of the bulls to sacrifice. There are no more pigeons to be sacrificed or oxen or sheep because they all pointed to Jesus. And what does he say? He says, tear it down in three days. I will raise it up. And he's not talking just about the physical temple. Look at verse 21. He was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So if that's not immediately clear to you, when Jesus says, tear the temple down and I'll bring it up in three days, if that seems enigmatic, 
or sort of a paradox or hard to grasp. You're not alone. Even the disciples didn't understand what he meant by that. But after Jesus, God with us, died and was raised in three days, years later, the disciples go, oh, that is what he was driving at. That's what he meant. And I believe all of the more. Now, look at verse 23, our last paragraph. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the what? It wasn't lost on everybody. It wasn't lost on everybody what Jesus was doing or who he was claiming to be when he says, my father's house, when he turns over the temple and says, I'm in charge. It's not lost on everybody. They see the signs. They understand. Who is Jesus claiming to be? He's claiming to be the Messiah, the chosen one. Verse 24 gives some of the most um, haunting words, <laughs> to me at least, for my life. Uh, and to me, this is one of those sort of like tuning forks of the soul. You know, whenever you feel especially proud, this is one of those verses to remind yourself of. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. See, Jesus is challenging casual worship. Jesus is showing us he has a passion and a zeal for God, that he runs the show, and that he alone has the authority to run the show. And when we realize and we get real with ourselves, we realize we lack the passion, right? I mean, anyone here feeling convicted about a lack of passion? I don't have this kind of zeal. And Jesus is not saying you need to have a different personality type that I'm only looking for extroverts, introverts need not apply. He's not looking for a personality type for worshipers. He's not even looking for a worship style. If you're pinning your hopes on spirit and in truth being tied to a style, you're going to be sorely disappointed and your worship life is going to be very dry. Friends, the power for true worship is only possible when it comes from outside of you. In just a few verses, in John chapter 3, Jesus is going to meet a very well-educated, uh, Bible-astute man who's a leader. He's actually a member of the Sanhedrin. And he's going to tell Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom. You will not know God until you are totally remade from the inside out. You cannot muster up enough extroversion or energy or excitement or zeal. The, the power is not within you. You have got to be made new from the beginning. You have got to be reborn. You have to be born again. And so when you, Christian, think about having a passion for worship, you say, I want to be more passionate. I don't want to be casual. Um, do not turn to the pigeons and the sheep and the oxen. Do not turn to styles of worship or outward expression. Now, that is all too easy and it'll burn out. You know what you turn towards? You turn towards him who for your sake was pierced and bled and died who was raised on the third day, and whose spirit dwells within you. It is a Christ-focused, cross-centered, Holy Spirit-empowered new way of living that nothing external could ever give you. And if you mistake that, 
if you turn from the gospel of grace that I am saved, not by anything good that I, I've done, not by how passionate I sing, not how, how much I pay attention to sermons, that's not what brings you into right relationship with the Lord. It is grace and grace alone. Friends, unless you get that, you will always be struggling in worship. You'll always be struggling. Because I know for me, I cannot rely on my extroversion or personality type. That is not what brings me into worship. You know what it is? It's being consumed with zeal for who God is. And if you're a Christian in the room, that's what you hunger for more than anything. You thirst for it. And as you know, this is our first Sunday of the month, which means actually hungry, thirsty people yearning to commune with God himself. We get to do that. We get to do it here. Jesus said, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. It doesn't come from within us. It comes from outside of us and we receive it. It's like a cloak of righteousness put over our shoulders. It's like we're eating something that we desperately need to stay alive. Friends, do you want renewal in your worship? Do you want renewal in our church? Don't pin your hopes on anything external. Pin it on the Holy Spirit at work within willing hearts. Let's pray as we prepare to take the table now. Father, we ask in the powerful name of Jesus, who has the authority to turn over every table that he sees fit, to challenge us in every way that we need to be challenged. Lord, we pray in his name that you would set aside ordinary things, this bread, this cup, for a holy purpose. And Father, we pray that for everyone in the room who loves you and follows you, that they would be strengthened by grace and grace alone, that we would not rely on our own strength, but wholly depend on you. Father, give us strength even now. Amen.